0: So, we're looking at, uh, to me, a really touching moment in Jesus' life. It's uh, that Passover meal time in which he's ministering to his disciples. And if I'm going like, to just kind of give you a brief outline for the text, we have verses one through three are kind of like a prologue. You know, like he's setting, he's setting the table, he's telling us what, what's really telling us about Jesus. And then verses. Um, for and following kind of unravel this narrative where Jesus washes their feet. And in that, Jesus is giving us instruction. So Jesus explains what he's doing in the foot washing in that first portion. And then in that second portion, he's calling us to follow his example. So it's a fairly simple um, and, and clean outline in terms of what's happening in the text. Um, but I think, I think for our encouragement, um, we're specifically looking at the character of Christ. So what I'd really like to do is focus solely for the first 80 percent on Christ. And then that last 20 percent kind of have one of these um, transitions where we say this is now what we are to reproduce, right? By the strength of the Spirit and um, for the glory of the Son to go and be like the Son. So let me just set the stage a little bit by looking at those verses. If you're looking at the notes, Ephesians 5, John 13, and 1 John 4, they're all saying essentially the same thing, but I think it's worthwhile to know that this is a a New Testament theme. Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So there's this command that we're to, I mean, and walk in love has that practical implication, right? Like this is to be the behavior that typifies the Christian. Do love with one another as Christ has loved us. John 13, which is later in this text. So Jesus gives us this example, and then in John 13, 34, and 35, he says this is a new commandment, that you love one another, right? That, that just as Christ has loved, we are to love one another. This is how all men will know you my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus Christ starts with this foundation, I've loved you. Now, this is to be the DNA of my people, They're my people. They follow after my pattern. I am one who loved them. And so if we're just going to pause and kind of break that out, I should find deep comfort in that first sentence. He has loved me. And I think the more I meditate and consider and evaluate and, and find sweetness in that, then when I live life and I see some discord between his love and my love, I should feel that conviction. Or perhaps when I see opportunity to love like Christ, I recognize God is preaching through the example of Christ of how I'm supposed to be behaving in this moment. Um, look at First John 4. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Almost as though our love for others is a manifestation of God's love and is the, the, the mark of God's people that like him we love. So knowing that's the foundation, then we look at a text like John 13 and we recognize that this is part of that example. Like this is Jesus showing us how to love one another. And so we, we should be looking at texts like this Where Jesus is deliberately doing something so that he's he's able to show us how we are to do it. Uh, I think there's certainly a lot of things Jesus does. I mean, he doesn't walk on water and then say, go and be like me. (laughs) Okay. You know, he doesn't omnisciently know other people's hearts and say, hey, you are to go and know like I know. But he does do love and then immediately say, do this. So we look in verse 1. And I just think it's, you know, I've I've kind of titled it in terms of, like, thinking through this. The Lord is revealed here. Verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I, I would take that both in. He loved them to the fullest extent. But I think there's also this clear chronological theme in this verse. He's at the end of his life, and he's not going to stop short of loving them all the way through to the work of redemption through crucifixion and resurrection. He is going to love them to the very end. And I think John's framing it then. He's saying, this is what we should be thinking about Jesus Christ. Even in this moment, he's doing what? He's loving. And, and what's happening to him is he is about to die. He knows he's going to get killed for our sins. And he's, he's heading into this moment where, I mean, I, I know I've said this before, but if we're in his shoes, do you have any, like, room in your head to consider how to care for these guys? I mean, where are you 24 hours before being murdered? Mentally. I mean, I might not be like, hey, I just want to spend time with my family. I might just like, in a dark room crying. <laughs> like, I don't know where I'm gonna be in my, in, my, in my thoughts and in my heart. But to be able to kind of like set aside the impending shadow of misery and torment, the suffering that's coming, and even the time he wants to spend with his father pleading his, his case and asking for mercy to say this is a time for me to give of myself to these men who are with me is a compelling statement on the care and love of our Savior. And maybe if we're, we're thinking through applications, to love others when your life is heavy and busy is what we're seeing Jesus do here, right? Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him. Now just stop. Who's at dinner with Jesus? Judas. Judas. What is Jesus going to do for Judas in just a few moments? Wash his feet. So here we have this example. It's like Jesus loved them even through and to the end in the fullest sense of the word. He loved them. And then we're like, okay, who's the them? And we're scanning the room, and it's like, oh, yeah, John, the one he loves. And Peter, like this leader who's bold and sometimes like a little bit dumb but awesome. And we scan the room, and it's like, Judas. Judas who's got Satan already moving him to, to plan, plot, and execute the murder of the precious Lamb of God. And what is Jesus going to do in this whole room? I mean, can you imagine that moment where Jesus is moving around the room, and he starts washing feet, and he looks up, and it's Judas. And he keeps washing I snap his ankle right there. It's like, you're not going to get out of this room. <laughs> like, like what, is he, what is going through the heart of Jesus? And I think we know, at least in some sense, it's love. Like, there is this tender expression that God is going to care for all his creatures. And in some sense, he's caring for Judas. I mean, Judas, Judas is only alive because, according to Hebrews, The son is holding him by his powerful word. I mean, Judas' heart is beating because Jesus is holding it together. But Jesus is ready to wash his disciples' feet, and so John is telling us, just in case we're not aware of who's at this supper, Judas is there. He's already been, um, maybe I would say, put under the influence of the devil, it's The devil's already put it into his heart to betray him. And then we go verse three. Judas, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand. Excuse me, did I say Judas? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. Okay, so we have Jesus is loving them. We have the them being, including the betrayer who is currently possessed or at least influenced by the devil and soon to betray and lead him to murder. And then we have this comment that John forces us to recognize who Jesus is in this moment. Who is he? He is knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So so we have this exalted statement about Christ. He is the king over all things. He is the absolute ruler without question, without parallel, without any pretenders pushing him out of the throne. He has got it locked down. God has given him all power. And what is he about to do? Wash feet. John is, John is calling us in this prologue to consider the context really carefully. We have a Savior who's going to love to the very end. He is going to love some of the people least deserving. And he is the King of Kings, and he knows it. Like, sometimes you wonder, what does Jesus know and when? Here he knows he's the King of Kings, and God has put into his power all things. And so what does this glorious man do? So then, we have the example. Look with me in verses 4 through 6. He rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon, Peter, who said to him, and again, Peter just says what we all are thinking, but we like to make fun of him anyway. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what am I doing? What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So look at this text, and, and I mean, the simple, the simple illustration is in verses 4 through 6, where Jesus is just exampling for them ministry, like caring, loving help. And so he washes their feet. Many of you know this culturally, and I don't mean to be tedious with details, but maybe some of you don't. Uh, Washing feet was considered really, really gross and demeaning. Um, Hebrew culture, uh, you could ask Hebrew servants to do pretty much anything in your household, but washing feet was considered off-limits because it was too demeaning. It was to treat them like a pagan slave. And so generally speaking, no Jewish servant in that culture household servant, would ever be expected to to wash feet. So, I mean, this brings in for us a little bit of maybe the horror when a lady comes into Jesus with perfume and uses her hair to wash feet and, and how the whole culture is just, like, aghast at this, like, expression of just not only humble but almost intimate care for Jesus. And, again, there's nothing inappropriate about her washing the feet in the sense of, like, um, Intimacy, but just that closeness, that, that willingness to shame her by using her hair to wash his feet. Um, and again, something culturally unexpected, but she would have been someone, in terms of class, lower, serving someone greater. So uh, some of the commentaries made the point, in, in all of Greek literature, there is never an example of a greater person washing a lesser person's feet, ever. I think they found one example in all of Greek literature where a friend who was a dear beloved friend against the protest of his friends washed in equal's feet. And we could like find one. Like, this is one of those compelling, startling, and almost offensive countercultural moves Jesus makes as he humbles himself and washes feet. Now, certainly Jesus is going to tell us at the end of this we are to be like this. But he leads us into a theological discussion in verses seven through 11. And it's one in which Peter kind of gets on the wrong side of Jesus. In verse seven, Jesus says, what I'm doing you don't understand afterward, you'll understand. And if we read through the rest of um, this kind of farewell discourse, he talks about the Holy Spirit who's gonna come, and he's gonna teach us all things. That us is not you and me, it's the disciples. And so the point would be something like this text where, where there's this powerful moment that typifies redemption, Where you can just feel in the room, it's like, it's right over their heads. After Jesus' death and resurrection, as the apostles are considering and meditating on the works of Jesus and his activity, the Holy Spirit brings to accurate memory and instructs them so that they can then deliver to us scriptures that are true and trustworthy. Um, There's not much I need to remember about the life of Jesus. I wasn't there. And so that's it's one of those promises that sometimes you'll see poached move from the apostles and into the modern church era, and it really needs to be in the context. It helps us know that our scriptures are secure, that their memories weren't just memories like yours and mine. And there have been times where my wife and I have had disagreements, and I would like to tell you that I'm always right, but sometimes my memory is flawed, um, and I get it wrong. The disciples never do because the Holy Spirit. So we look at a text like this, come to verse 7. They don't understand yet. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. This is very normal. He's probably expressing what all of the other disciples wanted to say. This is unacceptable. This is embarrassing. We should wash your feet, Jesus. Forgive us for not seeing that your feet were dirty. Let us do this instead. You feel that sentiment coming from Peter. Jesus then says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And, like, if, if I could just, like, explain how I think the right way to understand this is something along the lines of, if you don't receive my grace, you don't get it. Like, I think it's a simple statement. And, and you think about what salvation is. It is a sinner that's humble enough to receive the grace of the King of Kings. We should be serving him. And he's serving us. And this is the essence of salvation, and maybe that's one of the reasons it's so compelling and difficult, is that Jesus in this moment is expressing to Peter like, hey, you don't get to part ways with me and still do this thing. Discipleship is, is, is a binding together to receive my grace and receive my ministry. You don't get to say you're too good for it. You don't get to qualify how we relate to one another, Peter. As you continue on then, he, he starts to actually dig a little bit deeper into redemptive themes. Look in verse 9. Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Don't you love that like 180 degree turn in one verse? It's like, you're not washing me, Jesus. Well, then you have no part with me. All of me, Jesus. It's like, man, wow. That's a quick turn. But you can see, I mean, this is the sweetness of Peter. Right? Like he does not want to see his Lord shamed. But then he realizes there's redemptive and maybe relational expressions in this to receive the grace of Jesus is to embrace him. He says, man, I'm gonna do this all the way, fully. And Jesus then explains, look in verse 10 with me. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, maybe we could read it this way. um, All you disciples are clean, but not all of you disciples are clean. So I think there's a helpful explanation here that that Carson has, and I think there's two ways to take this. So let me read them both ways and kind of like amplify the reading as we walk through verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has been bathed maybe savingly justified so there's no more sin on his account, does not need to have some lesser cleansing of his whole body, but only needs his feet cleansed. So there's, there's two ways I saw the commentaries that this is taken. I'm going to follow Carson. I think it's, it, it, it fits the whole passage better, I think. One of the um, commentaries said this is ordination. And I just don't think it really fits. But he is, he's tying it in with the thought that we are to go and do this and we can ordain people. So um, it, the idea would be something like you are saved by God's grace and now Jesus Christ is commissioning these disciples in foot washing and then we as the church carry that ministry on to this current era. I don't find that really convincing. So some of you are looking at me like that's crazy. I don't think it's crazy, but I don't think it's compelling either. I think the better way is to see it something like this, that the one who has been saved is fully justified, is cleansed from their sins. To say except for his feet probably means something like what First 1 John 1, nine speaks of. That is, in daily life, there needs to be continual cleansing from sin to keep fellowship whole. Um, so, 1 John 1, nine: if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, is clearly a verse to believers. It's actually not a gospel verse. And it's like, if we were already included in the we as those who have fellowship in verse 4, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, So 1 John 1.9 is talking about the maintenance of a holy fellowship with Christ. And so I think we could see that similar thinking going on here, and that is Jesus Christ, whose work of redemption, has already fully cleansed us. And yet, we still need regular fellowship-type cleansing. And I think that's where the foot washing comes in. So look what he says then. He goes, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. That is, his feet need this kind of continual ministry by the, by the, Son, of Christ, the Son of God to keep us clean, but is completely clean. So, so I think what we should be seeing there and that completely clean is we are actually judicially totally clean always. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, so can I just like put a pin on that and like pastor for a moment? This verse, I think, really clearly makes known to us that our our standing before God is never in jeopardy because of failures as a Christian. Right? Having received the whole cleansing work of Christ, you are clean. You're, You're whole clean. But in daily life, walking in a dirty world, our hearts sometimes like sin. Sometimes we express our thoughts, and our thoughts are unwholesome, and our words are unwholesome. We tear down others. We gossip about them. We complain. We, we sin by omitting and not doing the things we should do. And the answer is the cleansing work of Christ again. And that's not to jeopardize our salvation, but to maintain a holy fellowship. If, consider, consider the grace with which he speaks to the 11. You are fully clean. And Jesus, through his word, says that to everyone who trusts in him. You're fully clean. You don't need to be washed again. So, so when you say, like, Lord, my, my head and my hands, you're like, do it again. What does he tell you? There's no need. You are fully clean. Now, what motivates Christ to cleanse the disciples' feats? feats. It's his love. He loves them. To the very end. And then he expresses this redemptive picture and this humble service picture to them. And he calls them to consider it. And, and, and obviously the theological import is missed by most of them. But as we continue on, so, so the Lord gives this example in verses 7 through 11, and now he applies to them, verses 12 through 17. I, I think it might say 16 in your own, so you should say 17. When he had washed their feet, And put on his outer garment and resumed his place. So he's back at the dinner table with them. He says to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Now what's the answer to that question? (laughs) Right, like didn't he already say that? He's like, you don't know what I'm doing. He washes their feet. He talks to them more. And then he's like, do you understand? And the answer I think presumably is no, you still don't get it. But I think he's calling on them and marking this in their memories that they might go back and consider it. He says, you call me teacher. Verse 13, and Lord, and you are right. It's kind of resuming the theme of verse three. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you. If you do them. So what does he tell his disciples to do? So literally, you might think this means go out and do foot washings, but you're missing the point. What's the real point he's calling his disciples to do? Yeah, I, I think if, if we are to make this walk in the ways it should, he's calling us to, to love others by serving them regardless of, of our position and theirs. And I would also suggest to you that by his implication on foot washing, he's challenging us to be restoring fellowship by removing those barriers in fellowship as well. That is, if Jesus is washing the disciples' feet to cleanse them, to restore fellowship with them, then we ought to be like him too. And I think those are, those are ways in which in pride, we don't. I mean, have you ever seen someone who's injured who says something like, I just can't forgive them until they do X, Y, and Z? Aren't you thankful Jesus hasn't said that to you? That he does not give you a list of recovery works before he'll give you grace? He says, come and confess and repent. Forgiveness is offered without behavioral mandates. It's given with a a heart of trust and repudiation against the sins that you formerly did. So he gives this application. So let me just kind of tease that out with you for a little bit longer and then uh, leave it to your meditation and consideration. I think little statements like this, no one is beneath my service, my attention, or my care. And can I turn that on its head because I think this also happens, nor is anyone above it. I think there's a false pride out there that says something like, well, they don't need my help. Or, you know, I don't know what to say to them. They know all sorts of stuff. I couldn't really serve them. And, and we can excuse a lack of love by telling ourselves they don't need it. Or we could say they're not good enough for it. I do think some of the barriers to, to genuine love and care are simply ones of relational gap. You know, when I see... Um, a 75-year-old lady who's struggling with something. Part of me just goes, I have no idea what that's like to go through. Okay. Like I, I, like I don't have that internal connection. I'm not really great on um, sympathy and empathy. I don't know if you've picked that up from me ever, but that's 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 not to make light of it. It's there's really a pride in me that says, I don't know how best to serve, so I'll just wait till I figure it out. Do you know what happens? I don't figure it out. And ultimately then, part of what I'm withholding from that person is just simply an obedience to love Christ through serving her. Um, I think we ought to be asking the questions, what could I do for their good? And what do I have that God has given me that I should be willing to dispose of for their sakes? whether it's time spent with them, just being present. Maybe even asking the question, how do I minister Christ to them? Because sometimes the last thing people need is you. And I don't mean that to be like sarcastic. I mean that like we see someone who's going through a hardship and we want to pour ourselves out. They don't need you. They need Christ. You know, so sometimes it's merely serving them and coming alongside of them, but sometimes they just need to be ministered to with um, shared prayer, with ministry in scripture together by calling them to consider Christ, not their problems. And we need to minister Christ to them in a sense that, um, let's go back to that 75-year-old lady. Let's say she's lost her husband. I'm never gonna lose a husband. I'm not a 75-year-old lady. She doesn't need me to sit on the ta- sit with her, hold her hands at a dining room table and cry with her. You know what she needs me to do? She needs me to minister the grace of Christ to her. She, she needs to remind herself, and I might be the vessel to do this, to hope in Christ, to reflect on the goodness and the sweetness of her Savior, to know she's not alone because she has not only a Savior, but a church family that is ministering alongside in the sorrow. I can do that, but I will have a hard time knowing how to give of myself to her. She might just simply need me to help give her Christ. Um. So I think spiritual care, comfort, here, here's one I think can be often neglected is just the ministry of prayer. And maybe just a little leaking of faithlessness here. We almost feel like prayer is like non-ministry. You know when someone's like, I'll pray for you, it's like, no, oh, thanks. That means you'll do nothing. You know, like we almost have that attitude and maybe perhaps you fuse it in that way. It's like, hey, I'm praying for you, buddy, which means I don't have to do that helpful thing. If you're using prayer that way, uh, repent. Um, if, if, on the other hand, you mean it, that you will pray for people, isn't that sweet service and ministry for their sake? Let's be a people that prays for one another, that takes time and our attention and comes before the throne of grace that we might plead for grace and mercy in their time of need. Um, I mentioned presence before. I think this is a big one. Um, Sometimes people just, they know you care because you're present. Christ is ministering grace. How can I minister grace? What are ways I excuse my lack of serving of others? Find those ways and kill them. Maybe I could just, like, testify that sometimes an unwillingness to shuffle your calendar or call your spouse to shuffle and inconvenience their calendar is part of loving others. I'm not saying you, you abandon your family and become a bad dad. But I am saying sometimes you and I know that in order to change your schedule to serve others, it will affect your family. and calling on them to join you in that sacrifice for the sake of Christ. And I would say judiciously. know, like not all the time, not everywhere, in order to follow the example and wash feet is what it means to love Christ. But again, if we just step back and go cosmic for a second, the king of kings, who holds the world together by the word of his power, washes feet to preach to you, to care for one another, to love one another. This is not an insincere act. This is not merely an object lesson. This is our Savior really, genuinely loving, right? Like, like I don't know how to express it, but there are sometimes where maybe to make a point, someone does something that's insincere to make the point. Like it's just that he's just acting. That's not our Savior here. Think how John frames it. He loved them, and I would say. Somehow, in that sense, he loves Judas by caring for him. And he is in full recognition of his position as king of kings. And he gets down, takes off his outer garments, and slowly, it seems, washes their feet as he pleads with them to love one another. And then he says what? Go. Do this. Be like me. And maybe to cut cut off the the protests that are about to come, what does he then say? A servant is not greater than his master. (laughs) Like, I don't know who he's looking at at the table, but one of those guys has got to feel that way to that look. Like, he's the king of kings, and he's washing feet. No one in the room is a king, let alone the creator king. They're just fishermen. Matthew's a tax collector. I mean, they're just schlubs. And he's saying, there isn't anyone you should be saying, I can't wash their feet to. There's nobody. We are a people who are called to see who we are before God, humble ourselves, and in a genuine concern and love and affection, care for one another. And again, I think if that's hard, if you have... Um, if you have that kind of latent selfishness that we all tend to have in pride and self-centeredness, I think we start by just going back and resting in the meditation of what Christ is doing here. Think how significant it was for these disciples that he loved them this way. I mean, in some ways, it led to their salvation, didn't it? Like he's using that metaphor of washing and saying, I have cleaned you. You're all the way clean. I am sacrificing and loving you by restoring fellowship with you. I am cleansing you. I am doing this because I love you. And that's what Jesus has actually done for us, isn't it? I mean, he's not taken a towel and washed my feet. He's done something way better. He's washed my account, cleansed me and made me absolutely innocent before the throne of God because he loves me? How could I look at any of his people whom he died for and think, I'm too busy? Or, you know what, Packers are playing tomorrow night, don't call. Or, hey, I know Charity's going to be really upset if I reschedule this thing, so I know you're really hurting, but... (coughs) I am not going to mess with my wife's schedule. <laughs> Do you say amen? <laughs> I think on those things, though, it's like, those are, the hard, those are the hard questions, right? Like, are you going to love others by, by navigating life to serve because you love? And, and certainly within a church context, I would say let's guard ourselves from imposing on ourselves a regulated, discipline that isn't loving, right? Do you sense in Jesus any kind of mechanical, I guess I got to do this for you guys because no one's washing feet. I'll do it. (laughs) This is a sincere act of love, isn't it? Let's make sure we cultivate that as well.